as Adam said, we are going to um, try to wrap up 1 Samuel, sort of. So why don't we pray as we get ready to look. Heavenly Father, thank you for the privilege that we have now to open your word. Lord, we don't want to take it lightly. We know that there would be multiple places around the globe this morning that for people to do this would be, uh, Lord, under threat, under duress, a very real risk of imprisonment or worse. We give you thanks and praise that we live in a place where we can gather openly, we can worship the name above all names and we can open your book and read and study. And so we ask now for the empowering of your Holy Spirit. Would you speak through this vessel? Uh, Would you bless brothers and sisters and friends gathered here? We pray that you would cause your grace to be a canopy over this moment. Uh, Remove every distraction, every invasive thought and bring a sense of sanctuary and a blessing in this place and time and accomplish your purposes among us now we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said, we are going to conclude this short series in 1 Samuel today and Adam will pick up a a psalm from uh, King David next week to sort of round out the term. But today we'll look at one final section from 1 Samuel just to bring this series to a close, at least for the time being. I wonder what has stood out to you over these last uh, six messages of tracking through 1 Samuel. Have there been some things that you felt like God has uh, spoken to you about through the stories we've looked at, through the characters that we've examined? Has there been something that has touched your heart and impacted you as we've gone through? I remember one of the things that uh, struck me when I first um, preached 1 Samuel back in 1996. I was a, a young pastor, fresh out of college, and uh, a young father, 1996, and I preached through 1 Samuel for the first time. And I experienced God uh, impacting my heart very clearly and profoundly. In fact, um, this was the Bible I was preaching through at the time. And uh, I've got a, a little printout in one of the opening pages, September 1996, I might read you what I wrote there, but it was something that God was impacting my heart about as I worked through 1 Samuel all that time ago. Uh, This is the first time since that I've been working through 1 Samuel. And once again, I have been impacted by the study of contrasts that is 1 Samuel. Saul versus David, first monarch, second monarch, uh, same location, same culture, same era, but so incredibly different. 1 Samuel is in many ways a portrait of two kings, uh, set in stark contrast against each other. The first king, it seems, is set as a, a dark, tragic backdrop for the emergence of Israel's best king. So just by way of a quick refresher, Saul and David. Saul, uh, a king is sought in 1 Samuel chapter 8 and Saul is introduced with a glowing reference in chapter 9. He divinely stumbles into the old prophet Samuel 
uh, looking for his father's lost donkeys. And he's privately anointed. God changes his heart in chapter 10 to bring him up to speed with his new calling. He's publicly acknowledged. And then by rising to conflict in chapter 11, he bursts onto the political arena. He's publicly acclaimed and applauded there in that chapter. However, almost immediately, Saul is seen to be in deep trouble. He runs ahead of Samuel in chapter 13. He receives a severe rebuke for his royal rebellion. No more of Saul's line will continue to rule as Israel's kings. He's forfeited that. And then chapter 15 details his final act of rebellion, whereupon Saul is rejected as king by God. The Lord grieves over his choice. Saul has lost his divine authorization to kingship and the spirit of the Lord departs from his life. Amazingly though, he continues on as a soured, tormented king right up until his tragic end in the final chapter of 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 31. But then you have David. David emerges from the paddocks where he's been tending sheep in chapter 16, overlooked and perhaps overshadowed by his seven older brothers. But he is the one selected by God and privately anointed by Samuel, perhaps scared that Saul might be aware of what's going on. And so David is, is promptly brought into Saul's royal court to play music with with both a skillfulness and a spiritual power uh, in a therapeutic way. Uh, David too has his moment of early fame as he burst onto the public arena in chapter 17. Killing a giant will do that for you, right? And then David had to bide his time under this uh, poisonous shadow and wait until the beginning of 2 Samuel until he's publicly recognised as king. So just watch this contrast in 1 Samuel. David's life is chronicled all the way through from chapter 16 in 1 Samuel on right to the end and right through into 2 Samuel and right through into the first couple of chapters of 1 Kings. David set the benchmark of what a godly king will look like for subsequent generations. They'll all be measured against um, whether they served wholeheartedly like their father David did. He will leave a rich legacy of psalms in the worship book that we still use. Old Testament believers and New Testament believers still draw from this wealth that was written by King David. Not that he was without faults, my goodness, and the narrative will show that clearly. But think of the difference. We we think of Saul and we think tragic, scorned, shamed. We think of David and we think heroic, celebrated, honoured in spite of his flaws. And they are many and confronting. But the first rises suddenly and almost crashes immediately but continues on in this sour, dangerous regime where David emerges quickly, but he rises slowly. He leads a godly life over the long haul. They're two very different kings 
set side by side in stark contrast to one another. However, there is one distinguishing feature between the two, and here's my point. There is one distinguishing feature that marks out the two from each other. It it may be a story about two kings, but the message is about two hearts. It's the difference in their hearts. You can track the story through 1 Samuel 8 to 15 of Saul and then starting with 16 and 17 of David. But the fact of the matter is there's two kings and there's two hearts. Even though in, in chapter 10 Saul actually had his, his heart changed, there's no evidence that Saul ever gave any ongoing attention to the cultivation and nurturing of his heart. And so it ends up eroding, putrefying, and he gets uh, rejected. Whereas David, David is seen as a man who has a heart after God's own heart. And when uh, he is sought for, when Samuel visits his town, and one older brother after another goes before him, God tells Samuel, no, uh, humans might look at outward appearance, but I look at the heart. It's a story of two kings and two hearts. So what do we know about Saul so far? A couple of things. We know that he's an impressive man. Uh, Stature, his family stock, uh, right off the start, he's, he's impressive, an impressive spiritual beginning. But he's also an impulsive man. He's given to rushing ahead to dispensing with God's commandments if uh, it doesn't quite fit into his timetable. And so his decisions, his behaviour are more determined by his sense of urgency than by God's commands. And so it's because of that that he ends up being impaled upon his own disobedience and rejected by God as a leader in a very short time. Uh, Saul is, is shown to be a man of no substance internally. But what of David? What do we know about David? Well, we see a couple of things from David and we saw them last week as Jared's Uh, walk through chapters 16 and 17, we see that he's a worker. We see right from the start that there he is looking after sheep in a paddock and that he's he's cultivated a diligence in his life. What his hands find to do, he does it with all his heart. And so even when he gets called by his dad to go run an errand to the older brothers who are fighting a battle, he makes sure that he gets somebody else to look after his sheep for him. He has a sense of responsibility and diligence. He's a worker. That's faithfulness. We also see that David is a worshipper. That when Saul is troubled by a tormenting spirit, go figure, that his his, uh, servants in the royal court say, we need to find somebody who's skillful with the harp. So David is brought in, but he's not just skillful with the harp. There's a spiritual power that's affected through him as he plays. And the demonic spirit leaves Saul. There's something therapeutic that's happening through that uh, spiritual gifting of music as David plays in, in Saul's court. And then we see him as a warrior. And here's this shepherd boy who knew how to step up to a lion, knew how to step up to a bear to protect his flock. And so when he comes to run that errand to his brothers and he sees this huge oaf of a man called Goliath, he says, I've done it before. 
this guy's just a couple of feet taller and still with the same stinking bad breath. I'll just take him like I did the others, you know. He knows how to step up to hostility. He's proven God's faithfulness to be able to do that in the past and so he does it again. I want you to notice though where those qualities in Saul, in David's life come from. Where was that forged into his life to be a worker who knew how to fulfill responsibilities with diligence, to be a worshipper who cultivated a sense of adoration in his skillful playing, who knew how to be a warrior, to stand up to hostility and trust God to bring defence. Where was all of that cultivated? It was cultivated in the paddocks, wasn't it? It was cultivated out of the public eye with no fanfare, with nobody else watching. There he is, the little brother that everybody else seemed to forget. Oh, yeah, there's one other. But there in that um, place of obscurity, that's where his heart is being forged. Do you see that? Not in the limelight. No, when nobody else is watching, God's doing something in his heart, in his life. Saul, Saul lacked substance, but David was marked by an integrity. So that even when David did sin, and he did, as ongoing chapters will show, terribly, the difference is that David repented. David confessed his sin. He acknowledged it when he was confronted by it. Saul didn't seem to. He wanted to rush past confession and just pretty things up on the outside. He's so given to uh, external appearances. I remember a great story about a colonel that had just arrived um, overseas in operation on the, during the Gulf War. And he was pretty tickled pink with himself, apparently, with his posting and his position. And he, he spotted out the corner of his eye as he's in his office. He spotted a private coming, so he thought he'd just show how important he was. He picks up the phone. And he says, yes, General Swartroff. Yes, yes, I agree completely. You have my full support. Yes, sir. Pops it down. Yes, private, is there anything I can help you with? And the private says, I was actually just coming to connect your phone. <laughs> this all was a man who was given to uh, preoccupation with his image, but he was vacuous on the inside. David's cultivated an integrity. There's something of substance here. He's not sinless, but he has integrity. So, Two kings, two hearts. Maybe I should read what I wrote all those years ago in September 1996 as I was confronted by this. A covenant for my heart, I wrote in the front of this preaching Bible. And I said, the one distinguishing factor between the demise of Saul as king and the rise of David as king is the difference between their hearts. Two kings, two hearts. Beth would have been a, a, a young person in the youth group back then Adam Saul experienced initial heart transformation from God but it seems he allowed the busyness and headiness of a leadership position to distract him from paying attention to his heart so it eroded and putrefied humility gave way to haughtiness reticence gave way to rebellion and so Saul was rejected as king and God grieved over his choice David was sought out as a man after God's own heart his was a heart forged in privacy over time and through conflict. 
his epitaphs, in distinct contrast to Saul was, Psalm 78, verse 72, and David shepherded them with integrity of heart. And this is what I wrote. Therefore, I want a covenant with you, Lord, to an ongoing submission and subjection of my heart to the ministry of your Holy Spirit so that you might continually have opportunity to transform me into a man after God's own heart. God's word was having an effect on me. I wonder if God's word's been having an effect on you too. This confrontation of what sort of a person are we when nobody's looking? Of what attention do we do we give to the interior, not just to the exterior? So the question now is, where to from here? That's the question. So these two kings have been presented. Saul, the one that the people demanded. David, the one that God gave. Somebody who was impressive but crashed quickly. Somebody who rises from obscurity and then just seems to continue for a long time. Saul has been rejected. David has been selected. Saul has shown himself to be vacuous internally. David has shown himself to be a man of integrity. So we would think if we were writing the story, this should be a relatively straightforward handover takeover from from here on in, shouldn't it? Out with Saul, in with David. The Lord has declared his decision. The, The crowds, you can still hear them cheering after the victory won on the battlefield against Goliath. So let's get on with reigning with the king of God's choice. That's what we would think. But have a look at 1 Samuel chapter 18 because things do not play out as we would expect them to. And I think, even though I asked you to read 18 to 20, I think we should just read chapter 18 today and that will give us enough of a heads up of where the trajectory is set for the rest of uh, these subsequent chapters. So 1 Samuel chapter 18, I'm reading from the NLT. It... um, has a a very fresh way of being able to describe the narrative. So if you've got your Bibles, follow along with me in whatever version you have. 1 Samuel 18. After David had finished talking with Saul, he met Jonathan, the king's son. And there was an immediate bond between them, for Jonathan loved David. From that day on, Saul kept David with him and wouldn't let him return home. And Jonathan made a solemn, a solemn pact with David because he loved him as he loved himself. Jonathan sealed the pact by taking off his robe and giving it to David, together with his tunic, sword, bow and belt. Whatever Saul asked David to do, David did it successfully. So Saul made him a commander over the men of war an appointment that was welcomed by the people and Saul's officers alike. When the victorious Israelite army was returning home after David had killed the Philistine, women from all the towns of Israel came out to meet King Saul. They sang and danced for joy with tambourines and cymbals. And this was their song. Saul has killed his thousands and David his tens of thousands. This made Saul very angry. What's this? He said. They credit David with ten thousands and me with only thousands. Next they'll be making him their king. So from that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. 
The very next day, a tormenting spirit from God overwhelmed Saul and he began to rave in his house like a madman. David was playing the harp as he did each day, but Saul had a spear in his hand and he suddenly hurled it at David, intending to pin him to the wall. But David escaped him twice. Saul was then afraid of David, for the Lord was with David and had turned away from Saul. Finally, Saul sent him away and appointed him commander over a thousand men, and David faithfully led his troops into battle. David continued to succeed in everything he did, for the Lord was with him. When Saul recognized this, he became even more afraid of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David because he was so successful at leading his troops into battle. One day, Saul said to David, I'm ready to give you my older daughter, Merib, as your wife. But first, you must prove yourself to be a real warrior by fighting the Lord's battles. I think he'd already done that. For Saul thought, I'll send him out against the Philistines and let them kill him rather than doing it myself. Who am I and what is my family in Israel that I should be the king's son-in-law? David exclaimed. My father's family is nothing. So when the time came for Saul to give his daughter Merib in marriage to David, he gave her instead to Adriel, a man from Mahola. In the meantime, Saul's daughter Michal had fallen in love with David. And Saul was delighted when he heard about it. Here's another chance to see him killed by the Philistines, Saul said to himself. But to David, he said, today you have a second chance to become my son-in-law. Then Saul told his men to say to David, the king really likes you and so do we. Why don't you accept the king's offer and become his son-in-law? When Saul's men said these things to David, he replied, how can a poor man from a humble family afford the bride price for the daughter of a king? When Saul's men reported this back to the king, he told them, Tell David that all you want for the bride price is a hundred Philistine foreskins. Uh, this, this will be offensive to our modern ears, okay? The violence of this time. There's, there are some quandaries in this chapter and in these passages. That God can send a tormenting spirit. That uh, This is just a time of violent war. Uh, wars are still violent, I know. But hear the story out. He's just... The, the, The author is describing truthfully what happened. Tell David that all I want for the bride price is a hundred Philistine foreskins. Vengeance on my enemies is all I really want. But what was in Saul's mind was that David would be killed in the fight. David was delighted to accept the offer. Before the time limit expired, he and his men went out and killed 200 Philistines. Then David fulfilled the king's requirement by presenting all their foreskins to him. So Saul gave his daughter Michal to David to be his wife. When Saul realized that the Lord was with David and how much his daughter Michal loved him, Saul became even more afraid of him and he remained David's enemy for the rest of his life. Every time the commanders of the Philistines attacked, David was more successful against them than all the rest of Saul's officers. So David's name became very famous. There are some conundrums in this passage. I acknowledge that. And I'm not going to answer them this morning. Adam will do that expertly next week. (laughs) No pressure. 
just be brilliant, okay? Um, but what I do want to look at with you is three things that stand out from this chapter that are conveyed via repeated uh, mentions. Repetition is a tool that the author uses here to bring things before us, again with stark contrast. So the, one of the first things we see here in this chapter is that everyone loves David. Jonathan loves David, has an immediate bond with him, loves him as he loved his soul, uh, gives him some gifts that have some royal uh, symbol to it. So Jonathan actually makes a covenant with him. It says that all Israel and Judah loved David. Uh, the women are singing as he comes back from battle. They loved him. It says that in verse 16. The singing and the dancing. Uh, Michal, his Saul's, um, another of Saul's daughters, had fallen in love with him. Everybody loves David. The, the heir to the throne, the, the whole nation with the two main sort of uh, sections of the tribes, Judah and Israel. Uh, Saul's daughter. Everybody loves David except for except for Saul. And so the text shows how Saul hates him. It's very specific. It says that Saul is angry about the way the nation sings of him. Saul is jealous of David. He violently attacks him, attempting to pin him to the wall with a spear. Imagine writing that up in a work health and safety application form, can you? How'd you get that graze on your shoulder, David? Well, my boss was in a shocking mood again and he had this spear in his hand, you know? This is incredible. Can you imagine this sort of thing happening today? David, um, David's uh, quality causes Saul to actually be afraid of him. He gets more afraid, verse 15. He designs to kill him independently with a plot. Let's, let the Philistines do it so that it's not on me. And then in verse 29, it says that Saul is even more afraid of him and remains David's enemy for life. Everyone loves David except for Saul. There's a second thing that's repeated through this chapter. David meets with continued success. So 18 verse 5, it says that David does whatever is asked of him successfully. 18 verse 14, David continues to succeed in everything he did. 18 verse 16, he was so successful in leading his troops into battle. And then 18 verse 30, it says that he was more successful in battle than all of Saul's officers. The result is that David's name became more and more famous. Contrast that with Saul. How's Saul's uh, popularity poll running at the moment in the nation? He's waning. Uh, Rumours, no doubt, are getting out about his temper tantrums and this terrible mood. Do you think the people in his court actually respected Saul? The songs certainly show that he wasn't as highly respected. He only kills in the thousands, David the tens of thousands. So David is meeting with continued success, not so Saul. He's waning. He's being outshone by the shepherd boy turned warrior. And then here's the reason why. And again, the passage highlights this. Chapter uh, 18 verse 12, it says that Saul was afraid of David for the Lord was with David and had turned away from Saul. 
18 verse 14, the reason for David's success was because the Lord was with him. 18 verse 28, it's when Saul realised that the Lord was with David that he became even more afraid of David and becomes a lifelong enemy. So here is the bedrock under, under which is, is giving David this continued success. The Lord is with him. And there's the contrast, you see. The Lord is with David, but he's departed from Saul. And so the very thing that led David to continued success is the same thing that causes Saul to be increasingly afraid of him and wants to kill him. So God is with David. So we would think, well, it's all good for David, right? The Lord's with him. He's got success. Everybody loves him. This is going to go well now. This should be straightforward. Wrong. Because who's, who's still in power over the nation? Saul is. And so from chapter 19 on, we, um, we see David as a fugitive. From chapter 19 on through to the end of chapter 31, David is running for his life. David is hiding in caves. David is going to stay with other um, enemy tribes and acting like a madman or trying to win their support somehow. He is a fugitive on the run from the king of Israel, no less. Not somebody outside the nation, somebody who's at the head of the nation. And David is a fugitive for all those years. And it begs the question, why? Why does God allow this? You see the irony of it, can't you? How topsy-turvy this is, that there's a rejected king refusing to abdicate, and there's a chosen, anointed king who is forced to hide and wait. Why does God do that? Why does God depart from Saul and say, I've rejected him as king, but not get rid of him? Prepare, anoint, empower David, and he's there and waiting, but he doesn't give him an open door. Why does God do that? Why doesn't he sweep the floor with Saul and just install David and everything can be sweet? Why does God allow David as God's chosen king to just sit under this poisonous shadow for all of those chapters and how many years they represent? And why does God allow that to happen in your life and mine? That just when you feel like God has given you a call and you're sensing that God is preparing you for something, there's some sense of divine purpose and appointment and you're discovering he's given you gifts and he's bringing friends around you, he's providing experiences and just when you sense he should be bringing you into some place and way that you can fulfill his purpose, instead, it's like you're just biding time. You go, what? What are you doing, God? Why aren't you clearing out the opposition and letting me go for it? Why does he make us wait, often under hostility and adversity? Why does God do that? 
Friends, I, I, I think this chapter shows us that God has some values that he esteems highly that we do not. Three things stand out to me. When it comes time for God to form us as people, these are his preferred ways. He prefers secrecy, not publicity. And we've seen the way he did that in the the shepherd's paddock and now we're going to see it in the way that David is on the run in the wilderness hiding in caves. God prefers to form us, you and me, in secrecy, not in the public eye. We see that God prefers slowness, not rapidity. God is rarely in a rush to create people of character. If you want to be a sapling in the Lord's estimation, yeah, sure, uh, give you a year, fine. But if you want to be a Tinglewood, if you want to be a carry, if you want to be somebody that under God's grace can have an impact for years and years, and that'll take time. And God doesn't seem to be in a rush. And we struggle with that. Why can't you do it quicker, God? Just let me at it. He says, no, wait. David, just wait. Just continue biding your time under this poisonous shadow of a man that I've already rejected. And you're going to suffer under his adversity, which is the third point. That God's preferred way of forming us is that he seems to use suffering, not safety. Have you figured that out? Very few people rise to any measure of stature in God's estimation in places of comfort. God is so much more committed to the development of your character and mine than he is for providing a place of comfort. Saul's in a place of comfort. He's in luxury, but he's tormented. David's in the wilderness crying out for God. And God's saying, I'm preparing you for years of impact here, David. How's this apply to us? Well, I think you can see. You know, I was uh, listening to a fascinating podcast this week, um, the Gospel Coalition podcast. It was a short-form one. And the speaker's name was Chris Collett. Chris Colquitt, sorry. C-O-L-Q-U-I-T-T. It was called The Strength That Gen Zs Need. Gen Z Christians Need. So Gen Z, just in case you weren't up with it, I certainly wasn't. Uh, if you're born after 1996, you're a Gen Z. There you go. Who just discovered that? Anyway, um, Chris was highlighting a couple of concerning trends that have been recognised among that generation. Uh, One is a decline in mental health right across the board. Uh, It doesn't seem to matter what you measure, whether it's anxiety, depression, uh, suicide, self-harm, they're all headed up in that generation. And another trend is that there's a decline in spiritual health a decline in religious affiliation, in Christianity in particular. Apparently, Chris was saying, today's generation of young people, and I think we can see it here in Australia too, uh, are more anxious, more depressed, and less Christian than ever before. And so in this podcast, Chris wondered if behind these dual realities lies a common cause, or at least uh, a common contributing factor, something that makes this younger generation 
both find life harder in general, in general and faith to be harder in particular. Something that affects both our spiritual and our mental health. And so he, he identified a very helpful resource. It's this 2018 book uh, to help understand the emerging generation by Jonathan Haidt and Greg Lukianoff, uh, The Coddling of the American Mind. Uh, these two, I don't, I don't believe, have any claim to being Christian. Their primary concern is to um, explore the mental health problems and numbers of this present generation. And they ask, how did this happen in this book? How did we create a generation that seems to struggle in this way? And their answer is to identify certain patterns of belief and thought that have been taught and embraced by young people today. One of those untruths they titled The Untruth of Fragility. It's the idea that's expressed in the somewhat altered maxim, what doesn't kill you makes you weaker. So adversity, pain, discomfort, whether physical or emotional, is an evil to be avoided. It's not an opportunity for growth, it's an opportunity for harm. And so, um, these authors say that we need to learn to protect ourselves, we need to learn to embrace safety. And so this idea of safety, or they actually call it safetyism, is inherited from a generation of parenting techniques. And these two authors say that uh, the last three decades of parents have been more aware of the dangers that are out there and more willing to protect their children from them. And so children grow up less exposed to risk, less exposed to harm. How many of you my age, maybe a little bit younger, you know, you always went riding a push bike without a helmet, right? <laughs> you know, there's something that has changed, hasn't there? I think these authors are onto something. There's something that's changed over recent decades. Well, what is that concern for removing risk and harm, what does it result in? Well, it results in an expectation of safety and of comfort. So, if you're experiencing pain or adversity or discomfort in life, you must be doing something wrong. Or someone is doing something wrong to you and it needs to stop. So, the expectation of comfort is also a recipe, it turns out, for a great deal of anxiety and despair. Because... Life has a way of finding us. Reality has a way of breaking in with a wallop. And when it does, we find that the world is actually full of adversity. It's full of people who don't care about our feelings. It's full of things that will hurt us. But remember, we have a generation of people who have been raised with an expectation of comfort and commitment to safety. And Gen Zs don't think for one moment that I'm saying you are the only ones who have that expectation. I think my generation certainly does too. Comfort and safety. But when faced with harsh reality, the two most apparent options are either be anxious to keep all of that harm and risk away or feel despair and depression because you cannot keep it away. And so Chris said in that podcast that this safetyism, this fragility is not good for us. It makes us weaker and less resilient in the face of trials and it's borne terrible fruit for the mental health of a generation of young people. So what 
Had and Lukianov were observing uh, f about what's produced mental, a lack of mental health is also equally true for what's produced a lack of spiritual health. See, as we enter into adulthood, we get mugged by reality. A reality that this world is not the world that we thought it should be. People hurt our feelings. Jobs have difficult bosses and unfair relationships. There will be injustice. There will be hurt. And in the face of this, we ask ourselves, am I doing something wrong? Is it supposed to feel like this? Am I supposed to hurt like this? Chris said at that point we have several options. One option, he says, and it seems to be the prevalent one, is to live in fearful anxiety that just seeks to control our world and avoid pain. But he said, and I'm quoting him because I don't think I can say it better. He said, but there's another option, the option the gospel offers us, the option of a better story, that story that gives us a realism about this world. As Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble. And the Apostle Paul can say, we rejoice in our suffering, we glory in our tribulations because we know what it produces. Tribulation, thlipsis. In the world you'll have thlipsis. Paul says we can rejoice in thlipsis, that pressure that comes upon us, like David experienced. Paul says that that tribulation produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. So the gospel offers a better story that presents a realism about our world, but it presents a realism with hope. Friends, our desire for safety, for comfort, is not wrong. It's just not yet. It's just not yet. We will experience it one day. Every believer in Christ will. Because Jesus Christ came into this world and suffered in it. Is that what David was prefiguring, I wonder? And Jesus purchased and redeemed for his people a place that will be forever free from all pain and sorrow and tears. And so we know that there will be a place of safety and comfort, a new creation, a new Jerusalem, but it's not there yet. And so like David abiding under that shadow, we too are called to still live in this overlapping time where the enemy has been defeated at the cross, but he's still hostile and at work against us. And we're waiting for Jesus to return for that moment of true safety and comfort. I think this chapter tells us something about how God works in us to form us, and I think it tells us something about what to expect as we look forward to Jesus. Following Jesus means suffering now and glory awaits us. And so we arrive at the point of all the scriptures. The entirety of Holy Scripture points us to Jesus, no less 1 Samuel. How? Well, it awakens in us a desire for a king. Friends, we want a king. We want a king who will be God's choice, not our demand. We want a king of substance and character and integrity. Someone who is godly to the core. And we want a king who will fight on our behalf. 
who will stand up to the enemies that are way too strong for us, who taunt us. The enemies of sin, the enemies of death, the enemy of Satan and his minions. And we desire a king who will defeat them soundly and usher us into his victory. And I think David's experience tips us off to realize that we're waiting for a king who knows what it's like to suffer. And so here comes Jesus, hunted down as a baby by Herod, rejected by his siblings, forsaken by his followers, betrayed by one of his insiders, crucified by his nation. Jesus knows what it's like to suffer. And he emerges through that suffering. He stands on the other side and he bids us come and follow. And he's prepared a place for us that will be free of all suffering. Jesus is the son of David. And so I invite you this morning to grab those elements and to come to the table. Come to the table not because you must, but because you may. Come to the table not because you feel strong, but because you know you're weak. Come to the table not because you trust in yourself, but because you trust in Jesus, the one who suffered in our place. Come to the table not because you can boast that you love him a lot, but you know that you are loved by him and you want to love him more. Come to the table to remember the suffering, anointed king who died in our place, who's risen, who's reigning and will return. And so the Apostle Paul tells us that uh, when Jesus had given thanks, he took bread, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Take the bread and remember the broken body of the Lord Jesus. And in the same way, Jesus took the cup of wine after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it. For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. Let's drink together. Lord Jesus Christ, we give you thanks and praise. The King above all kings, the Lord above all lords. The one who knew what it was to suffer. The one who's died in our place and now reigning. And in your providence, you don't immediately remove all adversity and hostility. But you allow it as an arena to form and forge us. 
Father God, I pray that you will give us grace, each and every one of us, to endure adversity, to endure hostility, to endure difficulty and hardship, knowing that your commitment is to conform us into the image of your Son. Lord, for all the desire that we have for safety and comfort, I pray that you will help us to hold it in suspension to hold it in hope that there is a day coming when every tear will be wiped away. But for now, we will follow the King. We'll worship you. We'll wait. And we'll trust you to sustain us. Have your way in us, we pray. And lead us as we worship even now.